All right, well, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to bring God's Word to you all together today and for us to um, evaluate some things that I know God has put in my heart um, for, for a while that I've been thinking about. And um, I make no claims of being a gifted narrator, or orator, I should say. So I probably will be just looking down at my notes a lot of this, but I do welcome questions and interaction. And um, if I say anything heretical, then we can continue working through it together and modify as we go afterwards. <laughs> but uh, anyway... As you may have already surmised, this should be more of a topical sermon, so we, so we will be looking at various passages throughout. But there's two primary passages um, in your bulletin, uh, Mark 4, 26-32, and James 1, 22-27. And we're going to spend a little bit of uh, focus time in those verses as we go along here. And rather than taking them apart verse by verse, I'd like to focus on how those two passages, each taken in their broader context, tie together in a surprising and insightful way, to help us resolve what I see as a tension in the Christian life. We will conclude these considerations by looking at what I'm calling the four foundations of Christian faithfulness and an additional principle for understanding our personal responsibilities before God, which we are calling the circles of influence. I've entitled the sermon Faithfulness as a Mustard Seed because I would like to consider together what God and his word would teach us regarding how we are to know if we're actually living faithfully in our day-to-day -day lives. At first glance, I know this might seem like kind of a simple question. Um, after all, there are huge sections of Christian bookstores and online sites for Christian living, lots of sermons on faithfulness. Um, but I feel like that um, despite the, all those resources, if you ask five or ten different Christians what faithfulness means, you're probably going to get 20 or 30 answers. And I think that I feel like this is a problem, that there's kind of a bit of a... Um, different perspectives on that and obviously there's always different applications of spiritual truth different ways we're going to express faithfulness in our lives but i feel like it's a lot deeper than that when you look out at everything going on in our culture and our society right now all the problems and there's you need to fight this battle and fight that battle and fight against this evil and all many good things many good organizations many good causes but at the end of the day i think sometimes there is a conflict in trying to decide what does it actually mean for me to be faithful what does that look like? What should I be involved in? What should I not be involved in? Um, so we're going to dig into this a little bit more as we go along. And I just want to highlight that while there's always room for different applications of a biblical principle or command, and this is healthy and good, we must never accept contradictory interpretations of what the Bible's commanded us to do. To put it another way, there can only be one interpretation of a biblical teaching such as what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, for instance. Either you're doing it or you're not. You know, either you're obeying it or you're not. But what that looks like might be different, um, um, depending on your context and the resources and time and factors God's giving you. But it's my observation, um, I already said that, just that there is different theological foundations between how people answer that question. We'll get into some examples to nail this down a little bit more in a moment. But the point I'm trying to make right now and I hope most every Christian would agree, is that starting with the wrong questions or assumptions, so questions the Bible does not start with, or ask perhaps, um, or commands the Bible hasn't given us, is always going to result in a disordered faithfulness. And whatever good intentions might accompany it, disordered faithfulness is not faithfulness. Before going any further, I'd just like to make a brief comment about my sermon title, Faithfulness as a Mustard Seed. I suspect some of you may be thinking, oh yeah, I've heard that one. Uh, while others might be thinking, wait a minute, that's the wrong word. It's faith as a mustard seed, not faithfulness. Um, and indeed, uh, in, in a lot of times, people are. there is a passage talking about faith. But I think what people are thinking about is Matthew 17, 19 uh, through 20, 
which says, After the disciples came to Jesus privately and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? Because you have so little faith, Jesus answered. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. In this context, Jesus cast out an evil spirit in a demon-possessed child, and the disciples did not understand why the demon would not obey their voices, and only the voice of Jesus. And the above statement was Jesus' reply. To summarize in my own words, Jesus basically said, You couldn't cast out this demon because you ain't even got the faith of a tiny garden seed. Um, but fortunately, uh, that's not the only passage about a mustard seed, um, and, and that actually isn't my point, because if it was, it would kind of be like saying, well, I guess you don't really need to have any faith. Um, but I'm actually dealing with the other passage in Mark 4:26, um, which falls in a section of parables where Jesus is discussing the kingdom of God and what it is like to be compared to. And in this section, of, um, and here, the, in, in this mustard seed passage, we see that the way God works in history in the unfolding of his redemptive plan is in incremental steps and small beginnings that then over time grow into large and beautiful and fruitful results. And, and in that sense, I'm thinking of that faithfulness would look like the progression of the growth of a mustard seed. So that's the title, wherever that came from. Um, and just go over here. So to put all this another way, true obedience to scripture and true growth towards maturity and faithfulness as Christians can never become just about what we are or are not doing. It is also vitally important that we think and, act, think and act biblically in why we are doing what we're doing and in how we're getting it done. While I do not claim to have the final answer on the matter by any means, or that I've discovered how to perfectly balance the various responsibilities God has called me to, I do hope I can provide a fresh perspective to you that may cause you to start thinking differently as it has for me about your day-to-day -day priorities, obligations, and purpose, living as a faithful Christian, laboring to manifest the kingdom of God in your corner of the garden where God has put you. Let me restate this last point. And I grant you, I'm kind of showing my cards here, but I know that a lot of folks find it easier to follow a flow of thought if you kind of get the punchline or the conclusion first. So here's basically what I'm trying to get at today. Faithful Christian living understands its obligations and orders its day-to-day -day priorities on the foundation of the individual purpose and calling of individual Christians, living and laboring to manifest the kingdom of God in their own corners of the garden, which God has given them to tend. In other words, faithful Christian living must always first be found in what God is doing in this world. Not a cause, not an injustice, not a problem, not an evil, not faithfulness to an ideology, however good or true, not a developed identity as a victim, and not in any sort of cultural or social defeat, and, and, but rather it needs to be founded in what God is doing and how God looks at the world. And second, faithful Christian living must have limits, which is to say it must have a clear scope and target for you personally. And these limits and targeted focus must be based on the gifts, time, and resources God has given you in accordance with where he has sovereignly placed you in this world and within the whole of all your responsibilities. In a word, this takes a lot of humility and even more wisdom. Humility to recognize that the problems and evils of this world are many and complicated, meaning that ignoring one evil over here could cause a domino effect of various other evils to take hold down the road. But conversely, it is also true that planting just one seed of righteousness in obedience to God's law in one area could cause an even greater domino effect down the road, thus eliminating a handful of other evils from ever even happening. So there's this perspective of fighting against evil versus building 
something and building good essentially and, and I think we do we are called to do both but we need to understand clearly which is which and which we're called to do this is where it takes great wisdom to know where we are to invest our time and energy into battling evil and tearing down idols versus investing investing in building for the future in obedience and faith to what God has promised to accomplish through our faithful efforts we must do both this is true but I would like to suggest that there is a much greater emphasis in Scripture on what could be on what we are called to build over what we're called to tear down. And while it sounds pious and well balanced to say things like, "Why not do both?" or "It's not either or," I've said these things before. There is certainly truth in the fact that God has called each of us to many different responsibilities, and we often will and must be involved in serving God and others in many ways at the same time. And we have to trust for God, God for wisdom and grace to do this when, when it's difficult to juggle. But on another level, these types of statements don't actually solve anything and I believe are counterproductive to practical obedience to God. Here's what I mean. Sometimes you cannot do both. Sometimes the limits of the time and resources and other responsibilities you have been given mean that you have to say no to investing and solving some very real needs and problems. And we have to understand that those are decisions we do have to make. Um, and this is, and by the way, just in case you're wondering, um, in addition to this being topical, I guess it is kind of more of a th theological consideration than an exegetical, but I am going to get to some scriptures in just a second here. So, but the real problem is, um, uh, anyway, I think this is a real problem that, that we have to say no to things and we have to know. So, and I think that we need a real sensible theological solution to this problem. Otherwise you could be on the one hand living your life with such ultra focus on one thing or maybe not giving it any thought at all, that you're actually in disobedience to God by not engaging in something he has called you to do. Perhaps you're failing to, to fight a specific injustice. Uh, perhaps you're failing to care for a specific widow or orphan, to meet a specific financial need, or to disciple and invest in a specific person. But on the other hand, you could be spread so thin in the name of faithfulness, trying to serve all the needs that you've been made aware of and fighting against all the injustices you've ever been exposed to, that you're actually doing nothing well and making zero progress in any area of your life. And as a result, you're running into defeat and frustration in almost everything you're trying to do. Neither of these extreme understandings of Christian faithfulness are what God has called us to in his word. What I would like to propose is that God has given an answer in his word that is far more clear, faithful, and even freeing than some vague notion of a lifelong struggle of just trying to find the balance. And this is what we're going to try and unpack in the remainder of our time together. So uh, if you please open your Bibles um, as you have them or your phones uh, to James. We're going to just read both passages together here. But James 1, 22 through 27, and then also Mark 4, 26 through 32. Um, so all that was basically the, the introduction. <laughs> so um, here we go. Um, as we look at these two passages, I'd just like us to consider that taken together, they teach us that the pursuit of true faithfulness in our personal lives must be found, founded on God's law and modeled after God's vision for how growth and change happen in this world. Which is to say, Christian faithfulness, and I might add growth and maturity, must not be defined by a list of things we are or are not doing, but rather by the law of God and within the context of God's kingdom vision for the unfolding of redemptive history. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and just read the passages now, starting in James. James 1.22 says, But prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, but does not bridle his own tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And then jumping over to Mark 4, starting in verse 26, it says, He was saying, The kingdom of God is like, a, is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows, and he himself, and how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the mature grain on the head. And when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, and by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are in the garden, grows up to become larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can rest under its shade. All right, so what is going on here? Why am I trying to look at both of these passages? I mean, at first glance, they do, they do not seem to be related. The passage of Mark seems to be talking about an idea referred to as the kingdom of God and appears to have something to do with how God is, God is accomplishing his will and mission in the world. Whereas the passage from James seems to be dealing with what it looks like to live our life as faithful Christians. But what I would like to propose um, is that understanding God's ultimate mission and method for redeeming this world, which includes the purchase of his elect people, but also much, much more, is vital in understanding our mission and the methods we employ as we live faithful and holy Christian lives that also include witness and service to the lost world around us. To put it as simply as I can, which is no small endeavor for me, I believe that this passage in Mark is the big picture perspective of how God intends to advance the manifestation of his kingdom in this world. And the passage in James is the short-term and more immediate perspective on how we are called to live as kingdom people in our day-to-day -day lives. So Mark teaches us how God is accomplishing his kingdom mission in this world, whereas James teaches us how we are called to live as kingdom people on the very same mission. But the whole point is our mission must be based on God's mission, with a sovereign, good, wise, and historically involved God at the very center of all of our obedience, work, and action. Therefore, at the center of our mission is not a cause or a crisis or a problem or an injustice, but rather a sovereign and good God who has a plan for history and who is redeeming this fallen world. Only from accepting this reality can we live truly faithful lives to everything God has called us to do as individuals. And only from this starting point can we develop a holistic understanding of service and love for our neighbor. Just to get back to the passages for a moment and dig a little deeper, um, in Mark 4, 26 through 31, I'm just summarizing, summarizing it as God's kingdom made manifest in history. So in Mark, verse 26, Jesus is right in the discussion, in the middle of a discussion, if you read the whole chapter, of what the kingdom of God looks like, as it is, and will yet be manifest in this world, which is to say how the kingdom of God functions and operates in the here and now, and how it unfolds in history, and by implication, how we are to understand the progress and spreading of the gospel in history and time. This passage, along with many others, 
is especially important to properly understanding um, uh, eschatology, meaning the study of where history is going and how things are all going to end up in this world by the time of Christ's return. And it is my fervent belief, and I know many of yours as well, that Christ is ruling and reigning as king right now, not only over heaven, but also over earth. And he will continue to do so throughout the unfolding of future history until he has defeated every last one of his enemies and made them a footstool under his feet. And the whole earth is then filled with the knowledge and goodness of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And all men remaining, not in ethical rebellion and defeated captivity, will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord and worship and glorify God. And the only enemy to be defeated yet will be death, at which time Christ will come and cast Satan and his demons and the enemies of God into hell. And he will renew the heavens and the earth. And this is why we are told to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because it is actually God's plan to answer this prayer. He will, uh, his will will be fulfilled on earth as it is in heaven before his return. At which time and not before the end of this age will come. Amen? Amen. So with this scriptural foundation, we understand that the parable of the blade of wheat and the parable of the mustard seed in Mark 4 are both pictures of the same thing. Namely, Jesus explaining the unfolding of redemptive history from the perspective of God. This is a big picture snapshot of what Jesus' victory over sin and death at the cross means for this physical world and how the redemption of individuals and the transformation and renewal of this fallen, broken, sin-filled world um, will actually progress. To put it quite simply, Mark 4 is God's big picture perspective of his kingdom mission, after which we as his people need to model our mission in this world. So just go back to James for a second. I'm just going to read through it really quick again. In James, it says, But prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer but not a doer, he's like a man who looks in the mirror and forgets what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Then he goes on to say, if you don't control your tongue, your language, your words, your religion is worthless, and the pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows, so to care for um, the oppressed, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. All this is said all together in one thought that James is sharing. I've always found this a bit of a puzzling passage for this reason, though, because far too often when it is quoted, I feel like it's rather haphazard, by which I mean one person or group wants to focus on the command of personal holiness at the beginning and end, and they conclude that basically the most important part of the passage is to not be a hypocrite, and that we should live out the things we say we believe, whatever that means for you, you know, which is true, we shouldn't be hypocrites. But then you have another person or group that just wants to talk about the part in the middle that says truly pure religion is expressed in caring for widows and orphans, but a lot of them never really get to talking about the personal holiness bits, from, from my experience. And some go on so far as to say that the ultimate definition of hypocrisy is not caring for orphans and widows in the right way, however their particular group defines that. Um, and so that could apply to fighting against race, racism, abortion, um, various forms of social injustice, you fill in the blank. And I see this kind of as a, as a tension, it focuses here. Do I agree that this passage contains a command to fight injustice and care for the, the oppressed? Absolutely, I do. Do I believe that this passage commands us to be personally holy and not hypocrites? Again, absolutely, I do. But my point is, both points must be taken together, along with considering the entire chapter and book. And while a complete exegetical examination of the book of James goes far beyond the scope of our discussion today, here's what I'm trying to get at. 
you can't develop a theology of faithful living that is not based on the law and mission of God. To say this positively, we must make sure we are defining holiness, faithfulness, and service and love toward our neighbors as the Bible defines these things, and not by some external standard or cause or ideology, however biblical or just or true that ideology or cause might be. So just to try and briefly summarize that again, what I see is the flow of thought in the passage of James is that this section begins by highlighting the fact that you're lying to yourself uh, about who you are if you're not actually obeying the things that God has very clearly told you to do. So if you're over here trying to figure out all the things you're not sure about the gray areas, but you're not doing what is clear, you know, that, that's the problem. He who hears the word must actually do it. Then he goes on to tell us how we can know what God in his words told us to do. We must study God's law and then obey it. And I take this to mean that we must study the whole of God's law, which means everything he has commanded us to do in every area of life. And since the word of God speaks to every area of life, then we see that James is simply reiterating the teaching of Psalm 119 and various other portions of the Old Testament. So as we delight in and meditate upon the whole of the word of God and seek to apply it in every area of life, we'll be, we will be blessed and we will have wisdom. Next, James goes on to say that if you think you're religious, which I take to mean theologically astute, wise, godly, faithful, a top-class servant, whatever, but you have no control over your tongue, then your supposed spirituality is worthless. For all the things James could have chosen to highlight that disqualify you from being approved as a faithful Christian, why control over your tongue? I mean, there are plenty of people that have written a lot of great books and done a lot of great things and probably logged a lot of hours on the street despite their little pet problem with anger or impatience or arrogance in the way that they speak to and treat others. And yet, James says that this is a really big deal. Next, he goes on to state that pure religion is to take care of the oppressed, orphans, widows, and those in distress. <coughs> he could have said that not doing those things properly is what makes your religion worthless, but interestingly enough, he, he did not. Either way, it is clear that, it, that not being faithful to these things, caring for the oppressed, reveals that you have a skewed and incomplete relationship to God and to your neighbor. And then finally, James concludes the section by saying that you should keep yourself unstained by the world, which I take to mean that you cannot be living in bondage to lust, greed, lying, impurity, drunkenness, and worldliness, and those sorts of things if you want to be blessed in your service of others. While it is certainly a temptation to just focus on the separate commands and teachings that we think are the most important in passages like this, I think the thing we need to understand is that all of this together is a snapshot of what it looks like to live as kingdom people, obeying God in our day-to-day -day lives. So this is a picture as a whole of what faithfulness looks like, doing all these things. And the takeaway is that you, sh you can't just be doing one thing really, really well uh, while completely ignoring another command that God's given you. You cannot be unfaithful in one area of your life, but make up for it by being ultra-faithful in another. God has called us to personal obedience and taking faithful action to love our neighbor. Um, it, it, those two things must never be separated. And if they are, neither will be blessed or effective. If we are the holiest person in the world inside our own little hearts, but never actually serve or care for anyone, then it is worthless to you or others. Conversely, if you're all about solving all the problems in this world and constantly doing what seems very sacrificial and loving towards your neighbor, but are not being faithful in very personal and immediate ways, then this won't be blessed either. But this kind of brings me back around to the tension I mentioned at the beginning. 
Because at the end of the day, we do have to decide in our conscience before God how much time and energy we are that we've been called to devote to or not to each and every need that we become aware of. Uh, those close to home and then those farther and farther out. But we are each given a limited number of hours and we must choose how to use them. We must make hard choices and we need to feel confident <coughs> that, um, that these choices are obedient and God-honoring ones. Every time we say yes to one thing, we're saying no to many other things and vice versa. And whether you are aware of it or not, we will all prioritize our time and resources one way or another. The only question is, are you doing so intentionally and strategically, or are you doing so haphazardly? At this point, before I try to bring this all to a conclusion, I would just like to briefly touch on something that I've hinted at, but really haven't explained fully. And it's these alternative definitions of Christian faithfulness uh, that I think both fall short or go beyond what the Bible teaches. While it may be an oversimplification, I see there being mainly two ditches that many Christians fall into in their understanding of what it means to be a faithful Christian and especially in how you make day-to-day -day decisions and priorities. Put as simply as I can, these two ditches are the ditches of false guilt and false comfort. So to start with false comfort, this perspective, to use the word generously, on faithfulness can often be identified as a sort of pietistic indifference towards service to others and a self-justified apathy towards evil, suffering, and injustice in this world. It can also be recognized by a sort of false peace with evil and a blissful ignorance towards the problems in the world around you. Folks in this ditch are always ready with a half-baked excuse as to why they need not be concerned with this or that evil and are too busy doing other important stuff to not get involved. They also like to talk about keeping the main thing the main thing, and yet frequently um, these people also live very affluent and comfortable lives and somehow find hours upon hours to argue with everyone on the internet about how they are going about their ministries and services all the wrong ways. At this, at this point, it should be noted that calling out errors from false teachers or pushing hard distinctions that make people uncomfortable does not automatically put you in this ditch. We do need to do that. And neither does, always being, does not always being able to get involved in a need. After all, part of what I've been arguing here is that one individual cannot meet every need. And in a very real way, we are rightly limited by our time, resources, and abilities. And it's not unfaithful to factor that in. But once again, even though some actions can look similar at times, it all goes back to the motivation of the heart. Why you do or do not do what you do matters. And God sees and knows the heart. He sees and knows our motives, and he sees and knows others' motives. We do, we do not, however, which is why on the one hand, we have been called to judge a tree by its fruit, but we don't have all knowledge and we don't always see everything going on in others' lives and we don't see into their hearts. So we should be extremely humble and cautious if we ever do feel the, lead, uh, the need to expose sin in others, trusting that the Holy Spirit is more than able to convict his true children in blindness and will indeed do so in his time. And quite possibly, should God permit, it could be through the example of your obedience and your faithfulness as you focus on what you've been called to do. With this in mind, I'll take a brief comment on the other. I'll make a brief comment on the other ditch, which I've called the the ditch of false guilt. False guilt often leads many well-meaning Christians to do things like give away very large sums of money 
to any and every need that comes across the television, perhaps, you know, um, for folks that are retired or something. Um, but often with very little discernment or consideration of the integrity and maturity of the individuals stewarding those funds or running the ministries in question, and with little to no knowledge of the kind of return on investment the money given will bring. For many, this kind of giving is also a way of trying to soothe a guilty conscience for past sins or a presently guilty conscience over some assumption that you're not involved enough. This is not an argument against charity or generosity, definitely not. But I am trying to make the point that charity, well, well stewarded, should be given where there is a reasonable expectation that it is being used to the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. And it should be given for the right reasons for there to be a true blessing in it for you or others. Uh, to give another example of this concept of false guilt, um, I think we could also think of it in terms of misplaced responsibility which leads many to feel an obligation to get personally involved in every cause and every need that they are made aware of. And as we highlighted earlier, this type of person is spread so thin that they're often burned out, discouraged, confused, and conflicted over what God has called them to be doing. And they end up doing nothing well and are ineffective at pretty much everything they do. And it must be said to serve everyone is to serve no one. Just think about that. Serving everyone actually ends up serving no one. To get involved in every battle there is to fight is to end up winning no battles at all. We are not called to bear the weight of every evil in this world. As spiritual and faith faithful as it may make you sound online, to use every hashtag and join every group and call out every injustice at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way. With all due respect to those who may disagree, spending such inordinate, inordinate amounts of time, as some seem to have, trying to win every argument and calling out every evil will leave you with far too little time left to actually serve and love and fight for the people in your own home, your family, your neighborhood, your church fellowship, city and county, on from there. So false guilt, which often leads to trying to serve everyone and fix everything, will very often lead to a very unfaithful life towards the things and people God has actually placed directly in front of you and will result in a person who is always defeated and unsure and constantly tossed to and fro by every wind and wave and problem and need that comes their way. Neither false comfort nor false guilt is faithful obedience to God. Nor will they bless others, nor will they lead to our maturity and flourishing. So finally, to get to the uh, punchline, if you will, this whole thing, in conclusion, which is actually four pages, but um, in conclusion, I would like to summarize what I'm calling the four foundations of biblical faithfulness, which is my best attempt at defining four very important elements or principles of biblical faithfulness. Not to say there's only four, but I think these, these four are very important. And finally, I will share the last piece of this whole puzzle, which should serve as our guide to how to better arrange and prioritize our life in a way that is intentional, faithful, and consistent with what God's, with God's revealed will for each of us as individual Christians. And we'll be referring to this last principle as the circles of influence. And this is something that's been an incredible help to me in understanding how to develop better personal and family priorities um, and, with and with the consistent application, which I'm still working on, I think offers the freedom to pour 100% of your effort and emotional energy into exactly what God has called you to do while not trying to do things he has not called you to do. I do not have it perfectly figured out or applied yet, but I do believe these principles are life-changing. The four foundational uh, the four foundations of biblical faithfulness as, are as follows, and I'd be happy to give more scripture text and whatnot later, but I'll just pretty much explain the principles. Faithfulness, uh, number one, faithfulness is covenantal and ethical. This means that all true faithfulness begins and ends with the law of God 
and his revealed commands to us in his word. Which is to say, you must never start with the problem or the evil and then go and build your theology or life priorities around that evil or problem at the center. Rather, you must always start with what God has revealed that he is doing in this world. And then what he has clearly called you to do second to that. And then you figure out which evils and problems that need fighting and solving would be the most faithful and effective investment of your time and resources. This principle also emphasizes, the, the covenantal part, that all true faithfulness must begin and end with God's love and covenant with us, which means that we do not seek his blessing in things he has not promised to bless. And we understand that if we are not living faithfully in covenant with him in the pursuit of true holiness and sanctification, he will not bless any amount of well-intentioned and godly appearing service. This is not to say we wait to have our heart right before our service, but it does mean that we need to repent frequently and approach both service and problem solving with humility. We can only truly love if we have been loved and transformed by the grace of God first. Principle number two, faithfulness is kingdom-centered, which is to say it is not cause-centered. We serve a king, not a cause. Causes, movements, battle cries, ideologies, and even organizations sometimes can be useful and are indeed needed. But we must start and end all of our endeavors and service and ministry and sanctified engagements and all sorts of good battles with a clear view of who the sovereign is. And God is always the sovereign. Jesus is ruling, ruling and reigning. And this means that all faithful battles with evil and injustice must acknowledge that a sovereign and good God is still in control behind all the evil and is accomplishing and will accomplish his will in this world and that justice will be had and righteousness will prevail in history. But we do not know when, and this is why kingdom-oriented Christians must be strategically faithful, which means investing the majority of their effort into long-term projects with measurable and attainable short-term goals. To do any less would be to attempt to live faithfully in a way contrary to the principles God has revealed in how this world actually works. Number three, faithfulness is limited. Which is not to say that it's limit, this is a, that it is a limited internal resource that we should like put limits on how faithful we're trying to be. Um, but, but rather, the point here is that we need to have the humility to accept that there is a limit on our own ability to change anything. And there is a limit on the reach of our own influence. That would be a, what I'm saying there. So additionally, um, our influence over anything is zero to none without the blessing of God. And as it happens, God has specifically told us in his word what actions he will bless and those he will not. And one principle that is repeated is this concept of faithfulness in little things first, as we've already discussed. In short, our faithfulness must be directed towards specifics, not generalities. Our faithfulness is limited in the sense that we have limited time, limited money, limited health, limited gifts and abilities, and most importantly, limited influence. And in this sense, there are limits to our responsibilities before God. As we've already covered, to try and fix everything is to try and fix nothing well. To try and serve and love everybody equally without prejudice to our own limitations means that you will serve and love no one well. And finally, number four, faithfulness is future-oriented. In some ways, this point is a repeat of the past points. Um, and so just to refine it a little bit more or to restate it, your eschatology matters. It matters how you view what God's doing in this world and where everything's going. What you believe God is or is not doing in this world affects whether you invest in long-term or short-term projects in your life. 
what you believe about God's sovereignty over the affairs of men, as well as his present involvement in this world. Is he an absent God far away, or is he involved in the here and now? Um, as well as, does this whole thing have a future, to butcher a phrase? This thing, these things all have huge implications on how you go about your work and service in the world. And in many cases, if you go to work or invest in things at all. So much more can be said on that point, but I'll leave it there for now. In final conclusion, like final, final conclusion, uh, the last principle or piece of the puzzle uh, that I think resolves a lot of the tensions that we've discussed is a principle of service, as well as an understanding of personal Christian responsibility that, as I said earlier, we refer to as the circles of influence. I would be amiss at this point if I did not mention that just as many things I've tried to express came from others, this principle as well of the circles of influence was first shared with me by our friend and brother, uh, Mr. Tim Yarborough, which some of you know. And while I hesitate to give credit for fear of how badly I have or will butcher the concept, I will do my best to explain it regardless. And suffice to say, these ideas have been instrumental in helping me understand how to be free from both false guilt over things God has not called me to do, as well as free from very real guilt over unfaithfulness and inconsistency in my own work and finances and family life in the name of ministry and service. It's something I feel like that I've struggled with for a long time, um, understanding that. So if you will envision with me a circle, at the center of this circle is you. And I'd be great if I had a whiteboard, but um, so you live at the center of this first circle. As you grow in your maturity and responsibilities, more and more eccentric circles are added around you. So you're here, you have family, you know, job, church, ministry in the world, evangelism, whatever it is. These various circles, while sometimes overlapping, um, hence eccentric and not concentric, if I'm using that word right, um, they nevertheless represent kind of separate spheres. So they overlap but there's separate spheres of responsibility and influence in your life. Each sphere, sphere or circle carries with it its own set of obligations and duties, as well as benefits and blessings. The circles closest to you represent your greatest and most important responsibilities, and consequently, those are also the people and things over which you have the greatest influence, and will, or at least should, devote the greatest amount of your time and energy. It makes sense, right? The people and things over which you have the most influence and obligations should, we, should be where you are devoting the greatest amount of your resources, time, money, energy, emotions, and labor. And then you work outward investing in the other circles within your spheres of influence according to their proximity to you and your obligations to them. So a well-ordered sphere of circles might have close to the center your family, parents, job, local church community, perhaps your children's educational community, um, your immediate neighbors down your street, um, in some of these closer circles. And then circles that go farther and farther out would ha might have things like extended family, old friends, business acquaintances, neighborhood, city, county, state, nation, worldwide missions. You know, these things go farther and farther out from your immediate sphere of, of focus and responsibility. Sorry, I lost my place here. Um, yeah, and, and all these things, as you get involved in hobbies, ministries, causes, politics, um, they also create new spheres. So as you factor in some of the other points we've already discussed, such as the fact that you have a limited number of hours given to you each day, and that you have a unique purpose and calling to fulfill within the kingdom of God, then you begin to understand <clears throat> excuse me, that the way in which you live a faithful and God-honoring life is by strategically investing yourself into people and needs 
according to where God has placed you. In other words, your circles over which you have the greatest influence and obligation will always make very clear to you what are also the circles of your greatest responsibility and what are not. I'll give you a hint. These are one in the same circles. Thus, you are most responsible to invest, uh, invest yourself where you have been given the most influence, and you must work outward from there. And these circles will look very different uh, for all of us, and they will change as we move through life. For instance, the priorities will look very different for a mother raising an army of children than for a single male working a nine-to-five job, than for a retired couple with grown children, than for a business owner building a kingdom enterprise, than for someone working 12 to 15-hour days um, faithfully at their career, than for someone with health conditions and disabilities who really can't work or do a lot of ministry. Like, all these people have very different circumstances. So your circles and your primary responsibilities are going to look very uh, different. The examples can go on. But at the end of the day, we have to ask, what is my purpose right now within the kingdom of God, and am I being faithful to this? In final summary, true faithfulness looks like investing the majority of your time into actually building something, and actually serving and discipling those God has placed right in front of you. This is a commitment, and it is a long-term investment. And as we are faithful with greater and greater responsibilities, God will give us greater and greater influence and opportunity. But if we are not faithful, in the little things, which are not actually little, and are not obedient on a very personal level in what God has commanded us to do, it is foolish to expect that God will grant us influence over individuals, institutions, or governments in vague and personal large-scale ways. Thus, I conclude, we are called to faithfulness as the progression of the growth of a mustard seed. May God grant us each the wisdom and discipline to understand and obey our individual purpose in the kingdom of God, and may we be confident in our labor, quick in our repentance, and hopeful in the brightness of the future. For many are the promises of God to his children, and he is always faithful to complete what he's begun in us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises to us as your people, your children, and thank you that you are sovereign and good over the affairs in our lives and over everything going on in this world. And Lord, you know that we are weak and feeble in our nature, um, that the things I've expressed today may or may not have been clear, but you know um, that it is our desire to be obedient and faithful to you in what you've called each of us to do. So I would pray that you would give each of us great wisdom in knowing where in our lives we are not being faithful and where um, you would have us to challenge ourselves and push ourselves and get involved in, in things that we've perhaps been ignoring and that we would use the principles discussed here to properly prioritize our lives and our responsibilities to those you've given us um, in a way that is consistent with your word and your business in this world. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people, this body of Christ, and uh, may you bless the rest of our time together. In Christ's name, amen.